Hello and welcome to the Autism in Real Life podcast. In each episode, you'll get practical strategies by taking a journey into the joys and challenges of life with autism. I'm your host, Ilya Walsh, and I'm an educator and the parent of two young adults, one of which is on the autism spectrum. Join me as I share my experience and the experiences of others so that we may see the unique gifts and talents of individuals on the autism spectrum fully recognized. Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Elia with the Spectrum Strategy Group. And today I have Elise Wolf with me, who uh, I've worked with before in the past. And I'm very happy to have a conversation um, again with you, but here with my audience on the podcast. So welcome. Um, one of the things I know we've talked about, I've been doing like this little mini course on the special education process and um, who kind of introducing who all the players are and getting very detailed into the forms and what they look like and how to fill them out because I feel like that's a bit of a, sometimes we use the terms and families get thrown into special ed and they really have, you know, they're really clueless. At least I know I was. And also educators as well. It's like, we're like, oh, here's, you know, you have three students in your class with IEPs. Here they are. And you're looking at it and you're like, oh, I, I don't think I've seen this document before, <laughs> you know? So, um, so, yeah, so I wanted also, I think the the biggest uh, piece, regardless of which forms you're filling out or whatever, is the team that is there to help support the student. And that team, I think, is really critical. And the, the relationship and the rapport with that team um, can make a huge difference. And I know that's something that you've uh, spoken about before in the past. And uh, you do a really great job. So I'd love to share that with um, with my audience. Thank you. Yeah, I think, first of all, just, you know, thank you for for doing this series, because under education in it's just such a um, a chronic challenge. You know, parents, we already have a full plate. And then parents of neurodiverse children. Where do you find the time to get the graduate degree it takes to feel like an educated and empowered advocate for your child? And um, so I just want to thank you for doing this series because parents don't need another reason to feel insecure about what we're doing <laughs> at a baseline. Right. I, it was funny. Um, I, I interviewed someone the other day and he said, you, you know, as parents of teenagers or young adults, you know, you feel like when they come to you and complain about something that they're not happy with, with like, the you know, their childhood, you're like, but I, I'm like, what do you mean? Why is that such a problem? We've done the best that we yeah. can. <laughs> like, I, I don't know what else I can do. So yeah, there's that insecurity of what did I do? What did I miss? What did I not yeah. do? Yeah. Um, so hopefully we can kind of help with that support here uh, and not, and again, not give people something else to feel <laughs> insecure yeah. about. Yeah. Um, so at least if you could, I know, you know, we've worked together for a while, but if you could let our audience know a little bit about yourself and your background and um, who you work with, that would be great. Sure. So I work out of Mass General Hospital's Aspire program. So we're under the larger umbrella of the Lurie Center for Autism. And the Lurie Center is a full spectrum program. Um, it's an interdisciplinary model with recognizing that autism um, is such a mind-body or the needs of autism, there's certainly some mind-body components. There's everything from GI to nursing to psychiatry. We also work closely with the Spalding Rehab Network. 
So the Aspire organization, our, our background is is specializing in supports for what would have been known as the Asperger's profile. And I can only imagine there's a series of podcasts on, <laughs> on what comes with, with using mm-hmm. that label. Um, so high cognitive <laughs> autism, similar profiles. While our expertise, we certainly consider ourselves evidence-based and, and we, we call um, a lot upon the research, we really value first-person narratives about autistic individuals um, and similar profiles to design our support model. So the larger response network emphasizes what we call our three S model. So that's so um, a focus on social competency, stress management, and self-awareness. And so those are the pillars that, again, as you are well-versed in, kind of come out of the Asperger's diagnostic profile, but are also incredibly relevant whether or not you have a diagnosis. Mm, There are so many features in today's world, especially with COVID, where social stress and self-awareness just need both that explicit support as well as opportunities to generalize and feel supported in applying the skills. Um, So my background specifically, I was fascinated by my kids and I actually um, wanted to be an actress. And uh, um, so I stumbled into this really interesting role um, you know, shocker for your audience that roles, um, you know, you can't really step into Hollywood or Broadway as a newcomer. So I was just looking to figure out what do you do when you want to become an actress and, and you're kind of staring at that life transition of employment. So I got <laughs> advice from my undergraduate psychology advisor and she said, well, there's this program in Massachusetts that runs a summer camp for kids with Asperger's and similar profiles, and they're looking for a drama specialist. And that just really blew the doors open with for the mm. rest of my life. So I, um, I that was the Aspire Summer Camp. We run a, an adventure camp for kids and outdoor programming, and that became my thesis. Uh, so then I graduated. I wrote my thesis on um, how creative arts and, and arts based therapies are really they're a challenging field to consider because they're a little bit of art, a little bit of science, and both of those fields are known for being slightly territorial. <laughs> so fast forward. Um, to kind of really needing to commit to a career. And again, I got great guidance from a mentor. They said, go check out special ed. They'll, it'll tell you, you know, what kind of profile do you want to work with? Do you want to work milieu or in an individual setting? Similarly, I got great guidance. If you think you want to be a therapist, go to therapy. And see what it's like. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I went to therapy and uh, love therapy <laughs> for myself. Do not want to be a therapist. <laughs> well, I really fell in love with special ed and the milieu based practices. And then, you know, I'll be honest, I was quickly disillusioned by the lack of social emotional training that special education teachers are given. And yet their day to day practices are heavily reliant on those toolboxes. So I, I have been with MGH Aspire since, um, and I've really turned my training. So I got my master's in special education, and I am really glad to have that formal training and that licensure. However, I needed to really take it upon myself to do a lot of further education in mental health to feel like I could actually be an effective special education teacher. And that's transitioned into being an educational consultant. Mm-hmm. So it's been a long winding road. And I think... Um, while that was a long explanation that doesn't really translate well to podcast format, I think it's important to understand because I want it to be validating for parents and for professionals working in education and mental health, just to acknowledge how complicated it is to piece together the training that will allow you to, to work in all the domains that are required of your daily basis, uh, of your profession on a daily basis. So my current areas of focus are in educational consulting for inclusion practices social emotional learning, um, and empowering and educating both parents 
and special education professionals to make sure that we have the training and the support to do our daily job and, mm-hmm. and make sure that students have the supports they need. Um, since becoming a parent, my emphasis has been more and more on, oh my gosh, how do we help this population of parents? <laughs> so that's why I'm, I think this topic of communication and collaboration is is so critical and I'm looking forward to talking about it. Yeah. And I think also, um, you know, given the current climate with everything being online or some sort of hybrid or, you know, just the challenges at home versus trying to keep your kids attending some sort of educational process that's happening, whatever that is. Right. We add, we just have another layer here. And I, I don't know, you know, if it's going to totally go away anytime soon um, or if we might find ourselves in a similar situation at some other point in time for other reasons. Um, So, yeah, I think finding all of these different tools and strategies that can help families and educators alike and the team that work with a a student. Um, And it's funny, maybe one day we can talk about the creative arts and and theater thing, because I think we have that in common, which I think we we just I kind of just found out a little while ago. Um, But that, that is a big part of uh, work that um, my son had been part of is mm. theater really helped uh, and music now still he's a musician so those areas really have helped him and he's he's not unique to that um, sure. and I, yeah so um, so that could be a whole nother topic um, <laughs> but um, so yeah so let's talk about this you know we have all of these processes maybe if your child is diagnosed early on you have you know your IFSP which you know those of you who are listening in couldn't go find that one. Um, but then they transition into right preschool and now we have an IEP. Um, and then from there we move into the middle school, high school, then we have a transition plan plus an IEP and then they go off into life and we would have done our work by then, right? Like everything would be, right. that'll, that'll be, <laughs> it's all done, all done. Um, but if like, let's step back in that, there is so much that happens in between and families, not just re- receiving services from their district um, or from local agencies, but also possibly bringing in additional support and therapists and so on. So let's kind of step back, like who could, Who are the players when we're talking about a team? Yeah, I I think as you as you just captured, really acknowledging the fact that that school teams are responsible for helping students access the curriculum, not closing the gap. And that's Mm -hmm. a really important distinction, I think, just for parents to clearly understand So that leads us into thinking about providers because it is, it's really, it's just a reality that your child's needs may not and likely will not be exclusively met by the team at your child's school. Mm -hmm. So that can be really confusing for parents because in school systems, we have OTs, PTs, SLPs, alphabet soup, right? We've done, yep. (laughs) Yeah, we have this, within a school district, there's assistive technology providers, there's school psychology. And based on how your child presents at school, and I, you know, if you can see my face, there's a facial expression (laughs) of that. Based on how your child presents at school and what we've seen from evaluations like a neuropsych, the school team will make decisions about which of those providers need to be on your child's IEP to access the curriculum on a daily basis. So at a school team that for um, autism, I I can imagine that that's likely, whether it's consult or direct service, OT, speech and language, 
counseling, special education teacher, and depending on your child's placement, a paraprofessional or a teaching assistant. Mm-hmm. But that's just what might exist within the school district. And then there's outside providers. So your child may have an in-school OT and an out-of-school OT. So this whole realm of outside providers is likely your child's counselor or therapist, perhaps an outside OT or speech, outside speech and language, if they do outside social groups. And there could be a variety of providers, like a developmental pediatrician, uh, another pediatrician, a GI provider. So there's this whole amorphous cloud of what is your child's care team outside of school. And then there's a point where we talk about who needs to be linked, right? right? So in order to help your child access the curriculum, there's the school team and the outside of school team. And who does the school team have to know about That's the first question. And then who does the school team have to be able to actively collaborate with is actually a second question there. Mm -hmm. And thinking about how do we make sure that there are structured coordination of care mechanisms between the school team and outside providers. So, so with that said, it feels like there are, there may be three levels of outside Mm -hmm. providers, right? One that possibly the school does not need to know about. I'm just saying. Um, And then the ones that they do know about, but maybe do not collaborate with or don't need to collaborate Mm -hmm. with perhaps. Mm -hmm. And then this third tier of it is, is pretty critical that some people have to connect so that we can transfer what's happening outside of school uh, inside of school and vice versa. Yes, exactly. Okay. All right. Weird system. (laughs) It is. No, because working with families, you know, I might have one family that says, I don't want the school to know that my child receives, you know, goes to therapy outside of school. Like the, my child doesn't want to see the therapist and, you know, the school counselor um, or whatever label that person has. But, you know, they do see someone outside of school, but the school doesn't need to know that. Like, I'm not, I don't think that's important. Yeah. You know, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I think there's also a question in there of, um, and we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves because I know we're mm-hmm. going to talk about just collaboration concepts later, but the idea of keeping secrets, <laughs> I think we should unpack that a little bit probably later on. Okay. But, um, I think for me to the decision to not tell the school team about an outside support, there has to be a pretty high bar for there to be a, I do not want the school to know this is going on. Just in the interest of um, schools want kids to be successful. So while their their responsibility is to look at access to curriculum, they're also going to want to take care of your child. And so you don't want to send mixed messages about, I want you to take care of my child and I'm withholding information from you. So I absolutely respect what you're saying that there are, there are things that school systems don't, shouldn't, won't know about. And if you ever, as a parent, find yourself making the decision of, I don't want school to know about this, unpack why (laughs) and, and make sure that there's a, um, that you're not sending mixed messages about wanting the school to really best be able to support your child. Right. Nope. That's, that totally makes sense to me. Um, and, and we can, we'll talk a little bit more about that. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Um, okay. So let's talk about that, that collaboration a little bit. What, what, um, I think if we go back to when a child is super young and they do, let's say they are in that process of early intervention or right, they have, um, you know, they're that be before three age. And then we, mo- we start moving them into this preschool time, which is scary for everyone because everything's been happening in the home and 
It's like it's very warm and fuzzy if done well. Um, so, so what's that first sort of transition look like? Or I don't know, maybe there's something even before that, like maybe even before we get to that, it's this whole entry into the world of special ed at home. Yeah, I think one of the most overlooked transitions is from the IFSP into the IEP because they are different documents and they have a different um, focus. So the IFSP, as as your listeners have access to in your in your um, you know existing library, that's for the family. IF is for the family <laughs> support network. So we're talking about a process that is centered on parent education and parent empowerment. And then when you transition to the IEP, that is not the focus. The focus of the IEP document is on the individual student. And yet the difference between a three-year-old and a four-year-old, <laughs> you know, a four-year-old's not going to run their IEP meeting. So there is this transition that happens where the document has an inherently different focus. The document is focused on the student. And yet the process might look really similar where the parents are the ones that are attending meetings and making decisions, but the process of an IEP and the document of an IEP are not centered around the parent or the caregiver's needs. And that really, um, the, because that's, that doesn't get discussed in the transition from three to four, it catches up with you. So then when you get to fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, 10th grade and high school, um, there's this snowball effect where parents are, understandably, the focus centers to the student being involved in the decision making. And without gradual support to understand, one, the, the parent's process and having to release responsibility, which is terrifying, and the student's education to help them become an involved participant in that, there, there really isn't um, a lot of transparency to help parents and caregivers understand this document changes. And while it may be five or six years until we actually have your child at the IEP table, still the transition from IFSP to IEP is something that we should be talking about and how this document is different and how you interact with it differently. Right. And and I think something else you mentioned here is family support, where that is an integral part of the, the, uh, the IFSP. Um, right. Families can feel a sense of, uh, well, there's definitely the sense of disconnectedness and it's like, oh, now you're taking my baby to somewhere um, and I don't necessarily have access to all the information. I also don't have the support that I would have had or that I've recently have had. Um, and, and where can families get that? And that, that could probably be its own topic. Right. <laughs> but <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, absolutely. And, and the conversations being focused on as a family, what are your needs? And then as a student, how do we help them access that the curriculum. Those are very different conversations and they feel different to families. And there's kind of this unspoken, ooh, we're in different territory now that can be really anxiety provoking if we just don't, if we don't talk about it, if we don't call it and if we don't label it and name it. Right. Right. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, your point about um, the process being about the student accessing curriculum, right? And I know I've worked with, um, you know, special ed attorney who's like, yep, it's about accessing curriculum and it's not necessarily um, totally holistic as we would might want to see. And you mentioned about, it's not about bridging all the gaps. And, and so, you know, I think when we talk about the teams that are in district and outside of district, we hope that we can bridge some of those gaps. Right. Right. Absolutely. So that's not to say that the school doesn't want 
to to throw every quality. <laughs> That's not to say that the school doesn't want to help close gaps. There, we're balancing existing resources. We're balancing legal mandates. Where so there's there's just this whole kit and caboodle of what comes with the structure of the decision processes around school and. School can be an incredibly valuable player in helping your child close the gaps in their mm-hmm. larger trajectory. Um, it's just where does the focus of where does the responsibility lie? And that's such a tricky conversation. And, and I can say, you know, I've lost sleep thinking about conversations about, wow, this is really hard. This kid really needs help. And there are limitations about how school can support this situation. So I just want to put that out there that um, it's administrators and special ed teachers were were not cold hearted. Uh, we just have, we live with limitations and resources. Um, and I think that that can, I, we're, I know we're going to transition into talking about collaboration practices, but that really comes into the collaboration and communication conversation. We're talking about your child. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about your child's needs. And so I don't blame any parent that wants to advocate for 110% quality and quantity. <laughs> right. In some ways, not set us up for success if we don't acknowledge realistic boundaries. Right. And so, yeah, so let's talk about that because I think, um, and also given circumstances that not all families are able to access um, services outside of school because school is, is what, is what we got. Right. And that's what we have. um, And that's all we can do given the resources and the time that we have. So, um, so yeah, let's talk, let's talk about that. Um, that collaboration between, um, you know, what, what can the school do and what kind of services they can provide? And then what would we look outside for? Um, and who, who could those players be, which we've talked a little bit about, and then how do they talk to each other? Yeah. Great questions. Um, (laughs) so, um, I, you know, Recognizing, I, I, I want to acknowledge that I'm going to step away from being totally diagnostically centered for a second and just talk about outside of a specific diagnosis. There are four domains that I really look at in terms of access to curriculum, executive functioning, social communication, sensory processing, and emotional regulation. So there are bits and pieces of those that come into the actual diagnostic criteria for a variety of diagnoses. And I think any kid, in order to access group learning, which is what we do in America in public schools, Mm -hmm. we do group learning, every kid is coming into the question of accessing curriculum with two different skill sets. There's their unique individual skill set which is what uniquely as a single individual is their cognitive, neurological, social, emotional skill set. What can and can't they do based on their current um, profile? And then there's when you put them alongside peers. Mm-hmm. And then, so then we're talking about what does the environment bring and what does the activity that they're doing bring? And so the intersection of the individual's skill set and the group learning environment is really when we talk about accessing curriculum. What, when can they learn, learn alongside their peers? When are they best learning individually? Mm-hmm. So going back to these four domains, I think um, every team should be talking about executive functioning, social communication, sensory processing, and emotional regulation. The school providers in the district, we certainly could align those with different uh, licenses and trainings. So for social communication, you've got an SLP. For emotional regulation, you've certainly got counseling. Sensory processing, you've got occupational therapy or perhaps some assistive technology. And then in, in executive functioning, you've got special ed teachers, um, reading specialists, literacy specialists, 
as well as some counseling, SLP and OT get involved in that domain. Mm-hmm. So I think that the now we start to talk about what's a direct service, what's an individual service at school versus what happens in kind of group learning versus what's push in and pull out. Um, and, you know, that's a larger separate conversation. But I think walking through those do- domains with your school team um, to identify in each of these domains, what are the supports my child needs to access the curriculum that's in front of them. And then we get into unique modifications and accommodations. Um, So then, you know, thinking about the individual skill set outside of school, the mechanism to send information back and forth, I'm going to start to, um, this is where I tiptoe into kind of my, my big soapbox when it comes to collaboration and communication, which is structure, 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 structure. So all of these conversations, whether it's at school with the IEP team or outside with providers, and especially to send information back and forth, need to be proactively structured. I'm not a huge fan of reactive conversations. I'm not a huge (laughs) fan of, in general, when we only rely on verbal and oral conversations to problem solve. I think that that just doesn't set us up for success. Right. And and I know also uh, as we get into this world of technology and social media and all that, um, there are a lot of families and educators who, well, educators are there are a lot that are online and have a, a big presence. And I've just recently learned like Twitter has been a big yes. part of, of educator yeah. presence. I was totally surprised because um, <laughs> I'm like, why that one? Like there's so many other things. But um, but yeah, like Families have access to that and parents yeah. have access to that. And and I do know teachers who have texted with their, you know, their kids' teachers and they get they can you can get really friendly with many teachers, yeah. which is lovely, but it kind of can cross some weird, um, weird boundaries, I think. Yeah. And then but then you would say, well, if they're putting themselves on, you know, on Twitter. <laughs> so no. right. Yeah. So it's so interesting. So I'll, I'll throw in a, if it's okay, a little historical tangent here. Mm-hmm. I think it's helpful that the Department of Education of Virginia did a really fascinating historical overview of the evolution of the role of a teacher. And they talk about that, uh, you know, back in the turn of the century or the origin of the role of, quote, teacher, it was an identity. So you had to be female. You had to live in the community. You couldn't smoke. You had to have skirts that fell a certain length. You know, you couldn't be seen at a bar. So it, in order to become a teacher, you committed to a lifestyle in the same way that you would commit to kind of a religious institution these days. And that role has really evolved into a profession. So now to be a teacher, you in most public schools and states, you have to have a master's degree. You have to be licensed. You have to have additional training. You have to get a certain number of professional credits every year. So we're in this funky transition still of this role evolving from the identity of someone who is caring for your child, who is a core pillar of the community that you feel like you should have this kind of sociable relationship with. And yet they are a professional. They have a a set of credentials and training that um, really transitions them out of the box of an identity and into a profession. And this gets really funky. So Mm -hmm. they're caring for your children. They're responsible for your child's well-being for hours every day. You want to have a good relationship with them. And yet they're a professional. Their, Their expertise should put them within a box of certain boundaries in order to help them best do their job. Mm-hmm. So it does not do, um, I'm going to say, this is where people start to love or hate me. 
<laughs> you know, you don't do yourself any favors when you consider your relationship with your child's providers to be friendly mm-hmm. and to be one of a kind of a more social dynamic. That actually takes the edge off your child's provider being able to do their job as a professional. Mm-hmm. Boundaries actually help your your child's providers lean into their professional skill set and give you more objective feedback. If you make the relationship more fluid, their support of your child will be more fluid. And that um, doesn't always help. Right, right. No, and I can think even, you know, this gets tricky even with family members who are in these types of professions, whether it's educator or physician or right nurse, like all of these things, where I think at some point those were those were identities. And that and they've, you know, there's they've now become these professions where people will ask you questions or want your opinion, but it can become a very sticky situation if yeah. it's if it's someone that you're friendly with or, you know, care about. And now they're giving you, trying to give you objective feedback yeah. about your child or a family member. And now it becomes a thing. So I can, I can totally see how that, um, that kind of uh, can be really uncomfortable. And so mm-hmm. um, with, so what would you say the parent role is then in working between the team at school? I guess that's one piece, the team uh, outside of school and yeah. then this collaboration. I used to think of myself, um, I, my role has changed now because my, my kids are adults, but my, <laughs> I would think of my role as general contractor. Yeah, and yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. um, so I would, you know, I, I kind of... I was in the, you know, my student, my, my student, my, my kids were in the middle and my students too. But as a parent, I felt I was a general contractor to, you know, kind of see where my kid was at. And as we saw things coming or things that presented themselves, I would pull the levers that I needed to sort of meet the needs and kind of project what was happening and kind of talk to the the team. Because the truth is we can't work on everything. And to have a poor kid in all of these different things takes up an enormous amount of time and energy. Plus, oh, right, there's learning happening and oh, right. and being a child and playing and doing those types of things. So um, that's kind of how I saw myself. And right. then to me, I didn't, it didn't, uh, I wasn't, I, I was fortunate enough that it didn't matter whether it was uh, a, a school person helping with that particular thing or whether it was an outside person and trying to fill the gaps and sometimes plug up the holes as best as we could. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so does that make sense or, or is there another yeah. role that could, that we could look at too? No, I, I really agree with that. And I've also heard it described as kind of an air traffic controller, <laughs> right? Um, and so I think that both of those, what's nice about both of those is they're, both of these analogies, air traffic controller and general contractor, speak to the fact that the parent is should not and is not expected to know all of the expertise of the various providers. So as the general contractor, you are not expected to also be a, a professional painter, mm-hmm. You, know, you should have a kind of a sense of what this person's role is. But I, I really think it's important for parents to recognize where they would feel better if they were more educated and empowered about a certain domain, but to set realistic expectations that you should not be an expert. That's why you rely on professionals. So I think to, to your larger question, this, the skill sets that both of these kind of analogies bring to the table is organization and coordination. So I think my, my first recommendation for parents is to really think about what for your processing style, 
step back as a parent and think about for you the way that you best process and organize information, what does that look like for you? Do you prefer to have things in writing? Do you like to record audio more often? So we talk a lot about advocating for our kids' neurodiversities. Do that for yourself. First, step back and say, in order to be my child's best general contractor, my organizational skill set requires that I always have things in writing. Um, I personally like things on paper. Some people like to have everything digitally. Step back and say, what do I need to effectively organize information? And then do a little bit of research about how you can best organize collaboration between providers. So um, I know we're going to talk about kind of homeschool communication logs and get into that in a little bit, but thinking about when you empower yourself to advocate for your organizational needs going into each provider's meeting. So if you are meeting with a with your developmental pediatrician, do you bring someone along with you that can take notes? Do you ask the developmental pediatrician ahead of time if you can audio record the session to listen back to it later and take notes? But don't just expect your brain to absorb all of this so that you can apply it when you need to. That's executive functioning 101 doesn't work that way. <laughs> so similarly, then applying that to school collaboration. When you go to IEP meetings, do you ask ahead of time if you can record? Do you bring someone, a completely uninvolved party to take notes? I was actually really pleased a couple of years ago when they implemented the new regulation that you have to have notes on IEP meetings. Mm -hmm. Why did that take so long? <laughs> my, my first thought is in order to be a general contractor, you have to set up your organizational structures as a case manager mm -hmm. ahead of time. Right. And you need to commit to using those structures. So what we want to look for is a process where you organize information regularly as opposed to the week before the IEP meeting. Mm -hmm. You want to just get into a routine of on a weekly basis, what happened with my child this week? Where do I file it? How do I write it down? How do I structure it? So there are ongoing organizational mechanisms to support the kind of the parent in their general contractor role. Yeah. And I think the other thing that helps with is, um, you know, in, in my previous life, I did um, professional development with, you know, individuals, manager training. And one of the things I would I would offer <laughs> was that your employee, and I would say similarly here, it, the, once we get to the IEP, it shouldn't be a surprise, right? We shouldn't really, no. we, it shouldn't be that there's anything new that came up that we didn't expect because we should have had, like you're saying, these regular communications and all of this information available and all questions answered by the time we get to that IEP meeting, whether it's once or twice a year or whatever, so that we know what we're there for instead of yeah. new information being brought up at that point in time. Yes. It's so it's, I'm, I'm so glad you brought this up because I want to pull a little bit on the research about homeschool communication. So the research on homeschool communication, the research that exists, says that um, the quality of the communication between home and school is more positively impactful for student achievement variables than the quantity, which is actually not what we would expect mm -hmm. given kind of existing literature on ASD, right? So existing literature on ASD is like, get data, get data, get data, get homeschool communication logs every day, get a 30-page thesis, you know, get, get the Iliad on your child by the end of the week. And that's actually not what the data say. The research says that how the school and the caregiver feel about the information that went back and forth is a better indicator of whether or not the student will be successful in that educational institution. 
Right. No, that that's that, you know, working with educators, you know, they get overwhelmed with being told they need to collect a lot of data, right? We need to collect data. And and I wonder, and, and then parents, if they don't feel secure in the kind of conversations they've been having and the information that's been shared, they will default to data. Okay, well, because I don't understand or you haven't explained it, you know, I'm going to use that language, because I don't understand and it hasn't been explained to me well enough, then I want to see data. I want to see data, how my child is doing. I want to see a portfolio of work. I want, right? So we start getting into that, because yes. the communication hasn't been kind of ongoing. And, yeah. um, you know, do you think, and again, this is probably off topic a little bit, but this data collection feels like a lot of it is very programmed focused. So whether it would be ABA, which of course is all about collecting data, um, but that's that's only one Right. That's like one type of thing when we're talking about all of the different types of um, tools and strategies and therapies we would be enlisting. Yeah, exactly. Um, And and what data looks like for it. I'll be honest, there are sometimes some goals that are just impossible to collect data for. And so there's this point in the IEP process where you say, oh, this goal is really good for my child, but how are we going to collect data on it? And it's really, it, it makes, it's, it's hard that we would, it's a hard decision to get to a point where we have to say, this is the right goal for the child, but I don't know if I can collect data on, and would you say, okay, then don't use this goal because we don't know how to collect data. You know, that's just such a, right. such a difficult decision. Um, so I think the solution to it lies in what you just said, which is to not to to acknowledge that data has a critical role in us um, being objective in evaluating a student's process. Absolutely. But I, I think people are overly reliant on data creating objectivity in the process. Mm. <laughs> and I think collaboration, how you talk to one another, we can also create objectivity there. And so we actually need to spend just as much time talking about how does our human to human communication, how does it sound? How does it look? How does it feel? And if we focus on trying to get a little more ob- objectivity in our actual communication, we're going to stop using data as the scapegoat. Mm, right. <laughs> um, so most of our communication is human to human. It's through email it's through phone, it's through in-person conversations. And I think we re- both teachers and parents really need to step back and say, what toolbox am I committing to in my communication with the school district, with my providers, so that I'm responsible for being objective? Um, and what, one of the phrases that I, I really like to bring up is appreciate subjectivity, strive for objectivity. Mm-hmm. So appreciate that we're having human-human collaboration here. We're not <laughs> robots. Um, and appreciate the fact that we're coming with through an emotional lens. Appreciate the fact that parents are coming at this, thinking about their child's future. Parents are losing sleep over this. Teachers. So we can acknowledge that. We can acknowledge there are feelings in the room right now. And in fact, if we don't acknowledge them, the, the, those feelings, they take up more and more space in the IE community, <laughs> right? Because humans are like amoebas. If you're feeling something and you don't acknowledge it, it is coming out anyway. <laughs> it is going to come right. out in your behavior, right? Right. So, um, you know, having, recognizing that we're talking about a kid we're ta- and parents are talking about their child and what can the parent and the teacher do to acknowledge that there are feelings in the room? And now let's get back to what might sound like a more objective 
process-based solutions-oriented conversation. So, so what is that? Com- what is the homeschool? Co- let's, so let's get to that, right? What are those tools? Those communication tools that we use between home and school. I know having worked with super young children a very long time ago, <laughs> like 20 years ago, you know, it was a notebook, right? We had either a composition notebook or something like that. And we would oh God, black and white marble. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Gosh, so many. many. Right. But, you know, it was efficient. You like wrote a note as as the child was packing up or something particularly interesting happened that day. You would write that like as an extra. Maybe you used colors to kind of make it a little more fun. The kid would draw a little picture in there. Like it was a little different things. Then you put it in the backpack with all the other stuff that goes home. And 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 in some ways, that simplicity was pretty. It was functional and it was effective and it was it felt more human in some ways yeah. than yeah. than what I think some of the tools might be now. Now I'm not in the classroom anymore now. Yeah. I do work with people in the classroom. So yeah. I think a lot of that now we're relying on email and maybe other yeah. other types of structured tools. And 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 what kind of tools exist now? What are we using? It's such a good question. Um, there are so many more. <laughs> I think that helps and hurts us. Um, so I, I agree with you that you know, the, I don't want to say the advent of email because that makes you and I sound older than you, <laughs> but the, the, how email is now used in schools and collaboration is trending us more towards the quantity over quality. Mm. So we got to be really aware that just because you have the option to get more information, that doesn't mean it's helping anybody. <laughs> um, so I think I, going back to kind of concrete recommendations, I think prior to the start of the school year or prior to the start of your relationship with a provider, having a a conversation that is solely focused on how are we going to communicate? Mm -hmm. So this is where both sides have to recognize we're going to, this conversation is only about how do we communicate? We're not going to talk about clinical or educational (laughs) concepts. This is going to be 15 minutes where we only talk about (laughs) the form of our communication. So that structure, right? Like that structure. structure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. So the conversations that I think should come out in that are, um, how does, what does the caregiver need to know on a daily basis? What does the caregiver want to know? So ask the caregiver to do some work to separate those two questions, need versus want. Similarly for the teacher or the provider, what do you need to know about home? And what do you want to know about home? And then lastly, thinking about what's the student's role in this. I I really have a hard time when homeschool communication logs are done outside of the view of the student. Mm -hmm. That, that, uh, be prepared to unpack that one later. Oh, yeah. So a couple of teachers I've seen kind of set up a Google form when they're getting to know parents that that sends it out. Hey, take your time and answer these six questions for me. What do you need to know? What do you want to know? Um, Let me tell you what I need to know and I want to know. And then you you receive that information before you go in to the verbal conversation meeting. So I'll get into another strategy now, which is don't be afraid to separate the gathering of information from the processing of information. There are a lot of rules that say we have to make decisions as a team in IEP team meetings. I'm not saying make decisions before, I'm not saying make decisions outside of the meeting, but don't be afraid to gather information ahead of a meeting. 
So whether this is an IEP team meeting or a transition meeting, a three-part, a three-question Google form, a three-question email, heading into our meeting next Tuesday, could you please answer these questions so I have time to think about your perspective before we meet in person? Mm-hmm. Humans do best when we process and when we gather information can do our own processing of it. And then we actually use the in-person time more efficiently mm-hmm. because we, we already know ahead of time what we're on the same page about. And we use our time to actually problem solve as opposed to just hearing data and data and data. Um, we've all been in those IEP meetings where it's an hour long and 57 minutes in, we're still just gathering data. Mm-hmm. That's so frustrating. Teachers get frustrated. Parents get frustrated. So if you're a parent, you can empower yourself to say ahead of the IEP team meeting, I, w- I want you to know this and send that to the team. And if you're the special educator, I would suggest having this be a part of your regular practice. I have a meeting coming up in one week. Here's a standard Google form of questions I want to know. How's your child sleeping? How are they eating? Are they having play dates outside of school? So that you gather that information and then use the in-person time to process it. Yeah, I, I, this is this is super key because, again, I've been in all I'm trying to I, I actually have a the the running list of meetings that I've attended as a consultant, I've attended as a parent, you know, and I've been a, a teacher at, and right, we spent, you know, probably 45 minutes, especially if we get into uh, middle school and high school, you know, all oof. the teachers who talk about each subject area. And it's like, why couldn't we collect this information beforehand? And and in I have to say in, in my own district here for my kids, we did get that, you know, an email or a form that came home, depending on which year it was, um, that said, yeah, we're, we're meeting in, in a couple weeks. We want to know your information. Like, again, it was like a series of questions. I can't remember all of them. But by the time we got to the meeting, every teacher had already written up a little something, yeah. right? Like we already knew maybe they couldn't all be there, but there was like one or two that were able to make it. And so we had that information. And so we could just use that information instead of just hearing some of it for the first time. Again, hopefully this would have been stuff we knew already, but um, but it was a way more valuable use of time instead of that that dump that can happen when we're in the meeting and now, you know, you've spent all this time and now it's, it, it, right, we're running out of time and we can't really make any firm decisions at that point um, with teachers needing to get back to their classes and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, what a great, what a great tool. Now, if the school doesn't offer that up, is that something that a parent can offer up? Well, please. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, I think parents need to be empowered to share their perspective more than they are. Mm -hmm. So let's get back to that gets back to kind of this quality of collaboration, right? So, um, there's this, I, I go into a lot of IEP team meetings where, you know, we're talking about the kid and I know in the back, we're talking about homework and their grades and all this stuff. And I know in the back of my mind that the parents are unhappy with the homeschool communication. And so it's like, hold on, why are we talking about, can't we just pause <laughs> and can I just call it and say, I don't think we're communicating effectively right now. Can we act, can we talk about the fact that I'm concerned I'm not getting the amount of information I need? Mm-hmm. So that's an example of, of, of recognizing subjectivity and striving for objectivity. Mm-hmm. So we can, you know, in collaborative problem solving, the, the Ross Green Stewart Avalon model, we would talk about um, the importance of feelings as facts. Mm-hmm. Feelings can have a place in this in these meetings where the parent can say, I'm needing more information. And the school team can say, I'm concerned. I don't have the time to give you more information. And then we problem solve, even if we're not on the same page. 
let's just talk about it. Um, I had a parent went into a transition team meeting the other day, incredibly anxious about all she felt she had to talk about in this meeting. And we just talked about the fact, what if you went into the meeting and just started off by saying, hi, I'm a parent. I'm incredibly anxious about my child's transitioning. What would happen if you just went in and you said that? The school team is not going to become your therapist. They have those boundaries. But how much healthier would that environment of the meeting be realizing, again, IEP, not IFSP, <laughs> that the parent as the person managing that meeting is having feelings, mm-hmm. right? It changes the tone. It changes how people communicate. Um, and, and I, you know, I'll, I'll call a certain behavior that I see happen a lot where parents, especially of kids with EF deficits, are used to having to keep such close tabs on their kids' homework. So they'll go in and they'll like check their grades three times a day and then email the teacher. I notice he hasn't turned this in yet. He hasn't turned this in yet. And that is an email that then gets passed off to the general ed teacher. And the general ed teacher says, I'm so sorry, my cat just died. I haven't had time to put my grades in yet. So then that teacher gets back to the liaison and the liaison sends it to the, like, did that, that's where I kind of want, want us all to say, I respect the expertise of my child's special ed teacher enough that if we've agreed, I don't need to know their grades on a weekly basis because we have that proactive conversation. Mm -hmm. If I've agreed to that, I, as the parent, (laughs) need to respect that boundary and respect the expertise of the school team. Right, right. And I also think about that and say, wow, what an enormous amount of energy is (sighs) being expended on just that one type of diligence. Um, because there are so many things that we have to look at, you know, or I shouldn't say that I'm going to back up things that we tend to look at and maybe yes. don't have to look at. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And I also think I there's this that. bar that we, we, uh, set and I, I will use, and I, I may have used this once before, but you know, there was a point where my son, we were sitting in our meeting and, you know, we acknowledged all the, the feelings, which was great. And, what I was feeling was like, wait, I feel like I'm not really needed anymore. So this is an 11th, an 11th grade, right? An 11th grade conversation. My son was active in his IEP. I worked to that, right? Like a couple of years before. And, you know, the, the liaison said, well, does Ryan think that he needs these types of services anymore? And I was like, Oh, wow. I think this is where we're going. And he, you know, again, he was sort of like, wait, so am I being asked, like, do I need these things? And she was like, yeah, what do you think? You know, and it it was, it's, I will hold on to that now. That was like six years ago, maybe more. And it was such a powerful moment because I felt like my role was shifting, right, from from being this, the parent who's the facilitator and the, you know, the coach and the general contractor to, oh, we're passing this off now. And now he gets to decide what works for him and what doesn't. And, you know, with the understanding that we still have this open communication and this net, right, while he's still at school. Um, and I, you know, he was like, wow, well, no. And she was like, well, what if we tried? What if we tried doing that? And I, I was like, wow, are we doing this? Are we really, right? So they're like panic yeah. set in. Um, and, and then, of course, all the implications, well, what does this mean? And what about graduating? What about a transition plan? Like, ah, right? Like, and knowing that I do this work, we have to also separate ourselves from being 
a parent to also being a provider. And, um, and I think if we can, like you said, call that out in the meeting and talk about how everyone is feeling and again, acknowledge the student, right. Especially as we get to that point, um, we oftentimes talk around a a student, um, and talk around our child. Um, and, you know, again, going back to that little, you know, composition notebook, oftentimes that was filled out right in front of the kid, right? Like as we're packing them up and we're like, oh, I'm going to write your mom or I'm going to write your grandma, you know, whatever. And we would put it in there and be like, okay, can I put a sticker on it? I don't know. I'm thinking about all these situations and what a much more personal and transparent conversation appropriately, of course. Um, But to, to not have the, the child involved in those conversations is really going to come back to bite. I think it's really going to come back to bite you. Yeah. I'll go one step further and say it's problematic. Mm -hmm. It's actually problematic. Um, One, it it breeds anxiety and mistrust. So we we do have research to to support the fact that when parents um, tell, when parents, when a, when a student picks up that their parent is dissatisfied or not, does not trust the school team, it negatively impacts their performance. Mm -hmm. So even if one, if you're talking directly to your child about concerns you have about the school team, uh, <laughs> uh, and I, I would advise against that point blank. Um, secondly, I think even if you're not saying it directly to your child, if you're expressing it in your facial expressions or passive aggressively, they're picking up on it. And then it, it's similarly going to help your child question, am I supported at school? And they don't need that extra anxiety. Um, they're already working so hard to build relationships at school. Um, so I think your point, there's this interesting transition that happens between elementary school and middle school that I've observed where um, parents, and I think it's because of what you just said, that they're seeing their child get older and there's just this, cons- this anxiety creeping in and, and it, rightfully so, right? Um, that then the level of information that goes back and forth Fourth gets taken further and further away from the child's vision. So things like your child actually had a rough time in social studies today. For some reason, there's a moment that the child doesn't know that. And it gets sent in an email between the teacher and the parent or the parent, you know, the, um, I don't know, the child didn't sleep well and the parent emails school. And so any, any degree of separation between the child and that communication, um, you're going to have to work it back in at some point. So every step you take to take the student out of the collaboration and the communication, recognize that you're going to have to consciously work that back in to teach your child how to be their best self-advocate. Right. Right. Yeah. So I think even middle school, homeschool communication logs, you know, your child knows it wasn't a great social (laughs) study. (laughs) Why? You know, what what can you help your child learn and be empowered to process back and forth if your child knows it wasn't a great social studies does first of all, does the parent need to know that? Um, if if I can give a quick COVID aside, you know, with with kids learning inside the home, parents have way too much data on their child these days, <laughs> right? Kids are sitting in their living room going to math class, and parents are watching them struggle in math class. They may not be struggling more than when they were in school. You're just seeing it. And so there is, I think, a helpful boundary of school teachers and educators and special ed teachers filtering data from school. Parents do not need to know everything that happened at school. And in fact, you can't be a good general contractor if you're also doing the plaster and the painting yourself or or if you think you're expected to. 
right? Um, so I think that they're, with kids being at home during COVID, parents are getting way too much data and it's not helping anybody. So they're acknowledging things are going to happen at school that you're not going to be aware of. Trust your school team because you have had conversations about what you need to know and what you want to know. Trust them. And then that, that will, if you're modeling that trust, you're going to get it back and it's just going to foster better communication and collaboration. Right. And I, I think this also brings into, you know, the, sort of my thought bubble of as my child gets older, especially right in that middle school, you know, there are things they, they don't want me to know as a parent. And, and, and how do we help them build Again, the self-awareness, the self-advocacy, but that independence where we don't have to be, we're not supposed to be melded together, right? There, And I think that can oftentimes, I think it happens a lot, especially when we have kids with special needs because we're, we're looking to protect the, to protect them, right? Like there's, I think I've talked about this too. There's a, a, like a little meme where it has like the lioness, you know, mother behind her baby cub. And it's like, you know, here's my baby. Don't, don't mess with them because I'm like right here watching, you know? (laughs) Yes. Well, and especially where the runway for parents of neurodiverse kids, you do have to be involved longer. You have to be more involved and you have to be involved for longer than raising a quote neurotypical child. That's, that's a really difficult acknowledgement. Um, and, and I think that the, um, the act of, of, of helping your child practice how to bring information from home to school, that I, I hear a lot of kids where it's similar that um, th- there's this interesting pattern where they're not involved in their homeschool communication log and they struggle to bring, bring homework between home and school and school and home. And it's like, hmm. Is it possible that we can actually support both of these skill sets by bringing them together? Taking information from school to home and from home to school, whether it's how your day was or your homework, are actually, they're related. That's a related skill set. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that that yeah. totally makes sense. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I also think about, again, as we move through, because I think the foundation from when students are really young all the way through transitioning them into post high school, whatever that looks like, um, you know, I, I'm going to kind of circle back to the school is going to provide what is needed to access curriculum. Now, when we move into the transition plan, now we're talking about accessing post high school life. And Uh so does that change? Um, And I think this is probably a good way to kind of sum up where, where we're going with this conversation. Does it change when we start thinking about what will this student, what will my child be able to do once they leave high school? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, you know, it's really hard to answer because I'm going to put on my educational consultant hat for a second and say that transition services in districts are so widely variable. Very true. Um, so I think we do have to acknowledge that what districts offer and what districts own is very different these days. Mm. Um, and I and I just want to not add confusion and anxiety to parents, but but just say that's true. I think a starting point is for parents to start to educate themselves on what is transition planning, capital T, capital P, way before your child turns 14. So, you know, when your child is in third, fourth, fifth grade, start to tip your toe in the water, dip your toe in the water of what is this concept of capital T, capital P transition planning, because that will tell you what the school can and will own. 
And then there's the lowercase TP transition planning, which is what are the services available in your community? And this is where the role of the general contractor, I think, does change because you do have to take a more active role in synthesizing what is the school going to offer? Therefore, what do I have to piece together outside of here? Um, that shifts the responsibility of coordinating all of these incoming planes mm -hmm. <laughs> to shift over to the aviation analogy. It does put that more on the responsibility of the parent. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, parents often have the most data on how is my child doing going to the grocery store? How, that may not have come up in school conversations. Right. Um, so I think helping parents understand transition resources that are out there, there are some great resources in the New England area, um, going to webinars, again, start young, mm -hmm. um, A&E offers, you know, this great transition to adult life conference that a lot of people will go to year after year mm -hmm. because your child is in a different place year after year. And just like your child might take three or four years to learn a skill from introduction to mastery, so will you as a parent and as a, as a case manager, general contractor. <laughs> um, so starting the education process early on and asking questions, ask questions to the school district. Can you help me understand what transition planning looks like for a child with this similar profile in your school district? When do those conversations start? Mm. Can they have a part-time job? Are we going to do a four-year high school or a five-year high school or a six-year high school? Start those conversations earlier on. And when I mean conversations, I mean ask the questions um, so the parents can be really educated to bridge the gap between what the school is offering, capital T, capital P, <laughs> and what exists in your community that you might have to take a more active role in piecing together right. to the benefit of the best transition services. Right. And I know, again, from school to school, some some schools really do offer a lot more support in the area and some are just starting to figure out how to do this type of planning process. Um, so letting people know, uh, you know, again, I think it can be super scary, but I think by having these types of conversations with yourself and, you know, I guess this is really all about communication with the school and with the family. Um, if we open up those lines of communication, oftentimes what feels like a lot of anxiety and, um, you know, a lot of uh, fear behind it can be sort of mitigated once we start opening yeah. up those lines of communication. Either, you know, it's not the way you had originally perceived it or yep, this is what I thought, or maybe it's worse than what I thought, but yeah. at least I know and we can address it instead of kind of hiding it or waiting and kind of, you know, seeing where things go. And that might not necessarily be um, a helpful approach to the, to the child. Yeah. And I think this concept of accessing curriculum is taken off the table when we start to talk about transition services, right? So we're not talking about this school mandate of can they access the curriculum on a daily basis. So the school will have more limitations mm -hmm. in what they can offer to your child and to give parents permission to work through recognizing the school will have limitations in what they can offer you. That's an emotional process. So starting those conversations sooner rather than later to allow you to stay as collaborative as possible with the school district is important. Yeah. No, thank you so much for all of this. I think this has given um, me a, a, another way to kind of approach different situations when I'm working with educators and with families. Uh, and I hope that uh, families and educators, I, I mean, I can think of a lot of different tools and ideas that you've given just to help one, <laughs> just to help with one, any one area. So thank you so much for being with me today.
Oh, thanks. It was a pleasure to be here. Great. And so I will put in um, the information that you've given me to share with everyone so they can find out more information. And uh, yeah, and hopefully we'll talk again soon about something else. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Elia. All right. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to Autism in Real Life. This is Elia Walsh, and if you like the show, please hit subscribe so you can get notified each time a new episode is released. I also offer training, consultations, and parent coaching, and would love to help you in any way that I can. You can check out my offerings at thespectrumstrategy.com, and when you join my email list, you can get a code to receive a discount off of an online class or a coaching session. Looking forward to hearing from you. Take care and see you next time.